You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, joined as always by your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. And at this at this point, Ben, we are both senior writers in MMA for theathletic.com. Really shortens up the intro, doesn't it? Well, it changes it for sure. Yeah. We've been doing it listen. so long. I used to be able to just do it in my sleep. Now I got a now I got new verbiage in there. How are you going to work in your acclaimed novelist stuff? I, I might just have to fall by the wayside nah, for now. I don't believe that. You think I'll figure out a way you'll to get figure, it in there? You'll figure it out. Just I'm give confident. me a couple weeks. Yeah. I'm going to start slow here. But it is some fairly significant news for the CME listening audience as uh, you change your, your place of work. I regain a place of work. You, you've got a damn job. Yeah. How about that? You're welcome. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yeah. It is a big Big life change for us. Yeah, thanks to everybody who reached out via social media and through the Patreon to say congratulations as we start these new jobs today. I know the people out there have a lot of questions, a lot of comments, a lot of concerns. Ben, we're going to try to get going with the uh, MMA talk here as soon as we can because it's UFC 238 Fight Week. So we got a lot of stuff to cover. And some significant stuff happened in the UFC over the past weekend. But the people want to know about the athletic, and I guess the first thing we got to tell them is that despite the fact that we are moving our written words, our written work to The Athletic, the co-main event podcast, Monday flagship show, remains unfettered and unchanged live on Mondays for, for all to hear. Still independent, still CME, and all the other content that we offer through the CME network, basically our, our Monday podcast, our Wednesday live chat, uh, we're going to finish up Road Agents here on Wednesday, now that the Deadwood movie came out. Last episode of Road Agents, and we figured out what we're going to do next. We are. I think, at least we're going to give something a try for a short while and see how it goes. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more later, I'm sure. Also, our Power Hour podcast on Friday. All that's still staying put, and The Athletic was kind enough to give us some help for the, the CME patrons. That's right. Because they've supported this show for a long time. The Athletic wanted to, to you know... Give a little nod to that. Uh, I'm going to be sending out an email here pretty soon, assuming I can figure out the technology involved with emailing this many people. But basically the way it works is, remember on Friday we sent out the newsletter and we kind of try to tell people, hey, if you're a patron of the podcast, we, we're about to have something for you. Yeah, some, some savings. That's right. A deal. And if you're not, you might now consider becoming a patron. But then we also warned them that that door was going to slam shut. And it slammed shut on Friday. Slam shut. Now, for the people who are already inside the door before it slams shut, the $10 patrons of the CME podcast, they get a year subscription to the, the Athletic for free. Yeah. So if those people are already subscribing to the Athletic. And there's a few of them. They're going to get an email from the Athletic. That's true. If they are not currently subscribers to the Athletic, they're going to get an email from you. That's right. Or from the co-main event. From the podcast. They're going to be able to sign up for a year's free subscription. That's right. And everybody else, the $5, the $1 patrons, have to go back there and check the code. I believe the plan there is we're going to have a code for you to get you 60% off a year subscription. So that ain't too bad. That ain't too bad at all. That's going to all go out by email. That's right. Assuming I can figure out the technology. 
I got faith in you. You're going to figure out the technology. I, don't, I wish I believed that you believed that. Ben, tell the kids about The Athletic. How did they convince you to step out the exit from MMA Junkie, which had been your home for years? How long have you been at the Junkie? Very nearly seven years. Almost seven years. Would have been seven years in August. Now you're crossing the aisle over to The Athletic. What tipped the scales for you? You know, I was talking with Dan Kaufman, the editorial director at The Athletic, who I know you talked to as well. And when we were just kind of discussing what does the job look like for you now versus what did you want it to look like? And what would you want it to look like? And I had to admit that there was some distance there. Like, I understand how and why it happens where, you know, my bosses have bosses they answer to, have bosses they answer to. And when you're running a website that gets paid on ad revenue, those are the people you answer to. You got to sell those ads. You got to get the clicks so you can show the advertisers so you can sell the ads. And that leads you to doing stuff that doesn't always feel like it is the most meaningful work for you. And that kind of had been trending in that direction for a while for me. And for The Athletic to come to me and say, hey, we're answerable only to our readers. Yeah. They're the ones who pay us, and we have to provide good, like quality work that they're happy with, and that's all we care about. And that, to me, seemed like kind of the ideal situation. And especially when I started to hear who else they had in mind for the team, I... I kind of hate myself if I didn't take the chance and go over there and work with those guys. Yeah. No, I had the same feeling. I thought I was out. I thought I was out of the game, Ben. You did. After I got laid off by Bleacher Report before Christmas of last year, I figured that my career covering mixed martial arts beyond what we do at this podcast, obviously we were always going to keep doing this, but I figured maybe writing about MMA, I was kind of done doing that at that point. Uh, and I turned down a couple other gigs, a couple other places came to talk to me and it wasn't, the situations weren't exactly what I wanted them to be. So I told them thanks, but no thanks. Thought I was going to be content to, to only do this podcast and otherwise stay on the sidelines. And then the athletic called me up pretty much out of the blue. And they, they told me the same thing that they told you about their commitment to quality work and the opportunity to write the stuff that you're interested in and not write the stuff that at times you know, feels like clickbait and feels kind of soul crushing as a, uh, a reporter and a writer to, to try to do just to keep the wheels turning. So yeah, man, we've both signed on at this point. Today is day one. My first story already dropped a preview story of sorts for UFC 238 about the, uh, the rec center in Commerce City, yeah. Colorado, where a bunch of people used to go pay $5 at the door to just go in there and beat the shit out of each other, which in and of itself <laughs> yeah. would probably not be a nationally relevant story. But come to find out, Donald the Cowboy Cerrone, Michelle Watterson, J.J. Aldrich, all current UFC fighters got their starts there. Uh, so I did a feature story about what at the time was called the Freedom Fighters MMA team. I like the... Anecdote right at the beginning of the guy coming in there, like, just going to check it out. Yeah. Just going to see what it's all about. And then the next thing you know, you're kickboxing against Donald Cerrone. Yeah. And he is not taking it easy he's on you He's beating the shit out of Pretty you. Pretty much, yeah. Michelle Watterson actually told me a similar anecdote where one of her first nights, because she had done a bunch of point karate previous to this, and they were doing, they, it was like her introduction to full-on kind of like kickboxing, MMA-style sparring. She went to throw an axe kick which she said was always one of her favorite techniques in point karate because if you throw it and it lands, you know, that's the end of the 
of the session or whatever they call them there in point karate. You just win instantly if you land an axe Well, kick? they stop the action, right? And they, somebody gets a point and then they restart. Oh, okay. That's how point karate works. Uh, but she went to throw it against Donald Cerrone and he threw a leg, a low kick and knocked her down, which he said was the first time that that had ever happened to her. And he was like, don't ever throw that kick again. <laughs> well, all right. I guess that's a, that's the way you learn. But yeah, uh, I also just published a story here a little bit ago about kind of about my years of travails with uh, neck issues. And I talked to a bunch of pro fighters who had tried different solutions for that and then talked to the people they turned to for help. Uh, honestly, as you'll see when you read the story, I might have even been convinced to try a, a surgical route that I had con- not previously considered by the end of this story. Um, talking to some people about it, especially these days after couple bad days of neck stuff. Is so. this is this the breaking news or the breaking pile of trash neck news that you'd been teasing all week? That's right. Last People week were asking the how the pile of trash neck was, and I was like, I'll tell you soon. And this story kind of captures a whole lot of it. And by you know, I started out thinking, well, I'm done all that I can do with this stuff. And then by the end of working on this story and talking to a whole bunch of people about it and looking into the research, I was like, actually. Maybe there's something more I will do. I'm, I might look into that. But yeah, you can read all about it there on The Athletic. Now, here's the thing. And I've heard of this already for some people. And it's a fair point that people raise. Where they're like, more paywalls yeah. in MMA. And I definitely see where they're coming from on that. And, you know, you got ESPN+. Plus, You got DAZN, of course, which I know you love. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're very thankful to our patrons who participate and help support this here podcast. And then now a bunch of MMA writing disappears behind a paywall. And people, some people are like, uh, you know, that's it for me. I can't follow more stuff behind a paywall, which I understand that perspective. I would say this, though. When I stop and think about the best stuff that I read, just in general on any topic, but also like the best sports writing I've read. It's usually stuff that you pay for in one way or another, like in a magazine or a newspaper or like a, a book. That's a collection of, of fight writing, stuff like that. Like I, I subscribe to the New Yorker. I subscribe to the New York times. I subscribe to the LA times, stuff like that, where you, you know, you're getting good stuff for your money. And I mean, I think there is a difference. Yeah, I also think you pay for it one way or another, whether it's pop-up ads and autoplay videos and stuff like that that they have to do in order to make a buck. But I also think that when I think about some of the my favorite stuff that I've read, it's stuff that you pay for in one way or another because, you know, somebody had to pay money to produce it and right. spend time and spend resources to produce it. I would ask those people to consider that. Yeah. From that perspective. Plus, The Athletic just covers sports in general and they do an awesome job. Like, if you look at the writers they have across all sports, they do really well, like local sports coverage for like whatever teams you follow. And they just do good stuff in general. I've been following their hockey coverage for a long time and they just do good work. So it's, especially you get in here with one of these CME discounts, it's pretty cheap and you get access to a whole lot of stuff. Another thing we should mention is for the people who are out there who are on the fence a little bit is that The Athletic does offer a seven-day free trial. I think for anybody. You can go sign up and get a week free. So if you're sitting at home and you want to keep following our work or you want to keep following Chuck Mindenthal or Sean Alshadi or Fernando Prates or Josh Gross, uh, but you don't know about it, you can go sign up for the seven-day free trial. Check it out for a week if you you like it. You can sign up for the subscription. If you don't, then uh, we can all walk away and remain friends. And you can still listen to this Monday podcast for free every week. I'm sure people are going to have questions moving forward. You know, we'll talk about this stuff again on Wednesday during the live chat, uh, probably again Friday during the power hour. You and I are actually going to be doing a live chat at The Athletic 
on Thursdays. That's right. Because that's the only day of the week that we did not previously see each other. <laughs> so Well, we can do this one from our separate homes, I believe. Yeah, that's Is what that... you think. I'm going to be showing up, knocking on the door. Well, I'm going Gas to... station coffee in hand, ready to Hit go. Hit the lights. Hit the lights. Pretend we're not home. Also, I'm doing a Reddit AMA tomorrow. Uh, if people want to jump in that, holler at your boy. Just a lot of stuff happening. But if you have questions about The Athletic... You're going to be hearing about it more on this show, obviously, week by week as we start getting into doing more work over there. Let us know. We'll do our best to answer them. Uh, we appreciate you guys you know, hanging out with us every week to, to chop it up about the, uh, the latest happenings in MMA, everything prominent, everything newsworthy, everything hilarious in mixed martial arts every week. So uh, let us know what we can do for you because we appreciate your support. We got music this week from longtime listener and friend of the podcast, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Ross, Stockholm Ross. Stockholm Ross. From Sweden. So this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast going to hit Stockholm Ross right where he lives. I hope I was following Tanya Evinger's exploits on Instagram after her fight in Stockholm. So I'm just, I hope Stockholm Ross is all right and didn't have a run in with her. She sounded like she really did it up in the town. I believe that. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Lusty Gusty calls it a career after dropping a tough one to Anthony Smith. John Jones does not believe him, but thanks him for his years of service all the same. And in round number two, the Cowboy and El Kakui are set to do the damn thing with a potential number one contender status on the line at lightweight. And really, that's all you should need to know about that. And in round number three, Henry Cejudo says he is already a double champ. And if he beats Marlon Moraes this weekend, he becomes the champ, champ, champ. So take that, Conor McGregor. Okay, that's, I'm trying to work the math out. He's the Olympic champ. Okay. He's the men's flyweight champ. Okay. If he wins this weekend, he will become the men's bantamweight champion. He will be the champ, champ, champ. At least according to Henry Cejudo. Does he want to go back and make sure he didn't wear like a beer pong tournament or something he forgot to include? It is, it does, it is kind of like, uh, Hicks and Gracie's 500 and 0 record, right? What are you suggesting? Like every, what are you suggesting about Hickson? Every scrap you ever been in, in the gym counts toward the record. You're the champ, 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 champ. If you think I'm going to sit champ. here and listen to you cast aspersions on Hickson's Gracie's beach fight record, you got another thing coming. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Giles Mooney, who I must assume is probably a snooker. Professional, professional snooker player. See, I would expect you to know this now that you've got a zone access. Yeah, I don't know. You're all over the snooker. I'll have to check it out. Do run a little bio search on Giles Mooney. He writes, so Alexander Rachik killed a guy on Saturday, huh? With guys like him, Dominic Reyes, and Johnny Walker lurking around, is there some new life being breathed into 205 pounds? At the risk of eliminating one of the two up-and-comers, him versus Johnny Walker could be a lot of fun. I would also not be sad to see Paperboy hang up the gloves. He's 39 and has been knocked out bad twice in the last six months. Discuss, if you will, fellers. So, yeah, this was a tough one uh, for Jimmy Manua out here in Stockholm. I was legitimately concerned for him. This was a nasty head kick. Yeah. Step through head kick right to the face. Manua drops like a sack of laundry, and his head just bounces off the canvas. Yeah, he was out before he hit the floor on that one, and that's when you really get knocked out bad. Like, And I don't know, though, in 47 seconds, what we can say we really learned. Like, It would be one thing if it's, okay, you got clipped with a jab that wouldn't have hurt you a few years ago, and you got knocked out, but anybody gets hit with that head kick, 
they're probably going to sleep. Yeah, that's true. I think in a, a vacuum, that's not necessarily that worrying that you get knocked out by the head kick for Jimmy Manua. But this is his fourth loss in a row. He was knocked out by Vulcan Ozdemir at UFC 214 in just 42 seconds. He was knocked out by Tiago Santos at UFC 231, uh, 41 seconds into the second round. Those are a couple hitters, though, man. He's out here fighting those hitters. Well, yeah, everyone at 205, if they punch or kick you right in the face, is probably going to be able to knock you out. So I agree with you. It's not all that worrying. I don't think that it's a sign of, like, Jimmy Manuel having a declining chin or being super easy to knock out. But at 39 years old... Four losses in a row, three of them being via KO. And as the emailer here, Giles Mooney, mentions uh, two essentially in the last six months, It's it's got to be a little bit concerning if you are a big uh, fan of the paperboy, right? Yeah, yeah, especially at his age, which is also my age. But the other part of this question, uh, you know, guys like him, guys like Johnny Walker, guys like Tiago Mejeta Santos, here's my prescription for enjoying what is going on at light heavyweight right now. Forget about John Jones. Because if we start doing the thing, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, more when we talk about the Anthony Smith-Gustafson fight. But if we start doing the thing where we're like, all right, there's this new guy who's fun, who's winning a few fights at light heavyweight. And then we immediately pivot to, could he beat John Jones, though? And then we ruin our good time. Because the answer is no. Yeah. Nobody could beat John Jones right now unless he just screws up or, you know, you, know, you land a lucky punch or, or something like that. But then I think that's kind of pointless for us to even engage in that exercise. I agree. I think that we can still have a lot of fun if we were just like appreciate these guys when they fight each other. They can put on good performances. We can have a good time. We can enjoy what they can do. And like, let's not get too hung up on what's going to happen once they inevitably get into the cage with John Jones. Maybe that's just like the thing everybody has to go through every once in a while. Like, hey, you win a few fights at light heavyweight. Sorry, you're going to have to get a title shot against John Jones. He's going to beat you up. But then you can come back. And you get back into the mix and we remember, oh yeah, you are good. You're just not the absolute best the way he is. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good prescription for almost any fight you watch. Like if you watch almost any mixed martial arts fight and the question you ask yourself is, could either of these two people beat John Jones? You're probably going to be disappointed. Right, but in other divisions you can be like, okay, a good featherweight fight. You know, could this guy beat Max Holloway? Eh, maybe, you know, a good like bantamweight fight. You, you can do that kind of stuff more, at least in other divisions, with light heavyweight I think because, as we've talked about, the drop-off tends to be so steep from, like, one and two down to, like, five or six. It seems like there's such a, a gulf in talent there. If you look at a guy like Johnny Walker or a guy like Alexander Rekic and, and you're just like, uh, I'm not even going to let myself have fun in this phase of it because I know he's not going to beat John Jones, I think you're you're ruining a good time. Yeah, I think the real point here is that in one of the shallowest divisions in the UFC, you've got a bit of a youth movement on your hands yeah. right now. Alexander Rakic is only 27 years old. He has won 11 fights in a row. He's 12-1 and one overall. His loss was in his first professional fight back in 2011. He's on sort of a four-fight tear here in the UFC against, you know, uh, increasingly difficult competition, I guess you would say, and two stoppages in a row, especially this highlight reel kick to the face of Jimmy Manua is a guy you want to keep your eye on, and I agree with you. For the time being... Let's just have fun with it. Let's enjoy the fact that there's some new blood in this division, and let's see where it goes. Also, I follow Johnny Walker on Instagram after he pleaded with us to because he needs to get sponsor money. This guy, he, he's I'm watching him in the process of figuring out a social media presence. He posted a thing this weekend that was just some kind of upbeat dance music while two dogs licked his face. 
Well, that's that all it was. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty standard fare for Instagram, right? He he's figuring it out. I'll say that because before it was like, oh, like oh, picture of me in the gym with my fists up over and over and over again. And then he's like, you know what people like on the internet? Puppy dogs. Yep. Here's two puppy dogs licking my face while you listen to a dance track. And you're like, all right, yeah, that's good content. Sounds like a solid follow. Next question this week comes to us from Lovely Spud. Okay. He or she writes, take a minute, if you please, to discourse on the difference between the fighting style of Daniel Tamer and Elias Theodoro. And he went Theodoro, E-A-U-G-H-X. Yeah. And then asks, spelling afterwards? I That's think, not how you spell it. I think you're intentionally misspelling it to make a point about how many vowels are in Elias Theodoro's last name. Here's his his point by point breakdown of these two. One, one of these guys is an all action and liter- is all action and literally breaks his hand when he lands cleanly. The other guy jogs around shadow boxing in slow motion. Two, one guy goes 0-3 in the UFC until this weekend's victory, and I believe has a very bright action fighter future in the promotion. The other guy goes eight and three and gets cut. What does this say to other fighters about how fighting styles affect your UFC prospects independent of your record? So we talked about this a little bit last week, Ben, that Elias the Doru, uh, a tough winner, I believe, right? And yeah. eight and three overall after eleven in fights. After eleven fights in the UFC, lost his last one. Uh, was notified that he has been excused from the organization. Which you know, when you got a good record like that, you're not necessarily about to be the champ, but you've proved yourself to be UFC caliber just in terms of uh, the competition there. Uh, it's going to open some eyes, especially when it's right. a guy like Elias Theodoro who has, you know, done a lot to promote himself and kind of make himself a uh, a unique figure in the sport, which, you know, in the landscape of today's mixed martial arts is is notable. Right. And his one loss snapped a three-fight winning streak. So it wasn't like he'd had multiple losses in a row. But yeah, then you're right. You know, you turn around and you look at a guy like Daniel Teamer and he was riding a three-fight losing streak coming into this one. And then he wins a decision. It's a fun Action fight, that is true. Also, though, I would point out as a little bit of an asterisk here that it's not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison because the UFC seems to have Tamer on that European circuit. Yep. Like, they have some guys in mind. Makwan Amirakani, I think, is one of these guys, too. Where Call him up when you're in town. Yeah. When you're in the neighborhood. When you're in the region, basically. Like, he doesn't just fight in Stockholm. Like, you know, when the UFC went to Glasgow... We got him. He fought once in New York, in Utica, New York. Uh, but then, you know, he fought in Prague. He fights in Stockholm. He's one of those kind of guys. The UFC has those guys. It has kind of European guys that it thinks of only in those purposes. It has some some Asian fighters that it thinks of in that way. It has some Australian and New Zealand fighters that it thinks of that, that along the same lines. So that is one wrinkle here. But I do think it is a fair point to be like... And not necessarily a new point, really, that we've seen this before, where yeah. if you go out there and you can just be counted on to have a, a good, crazy, fun fight, the UFC will give you a little more leeway. And yet, we've also seen how that goes. You can't do that for as long. That catches up to you faster than being a more tactical fight. You can just, you can have Elias Theodoro's fighting style for longer if you want to then you can do something like this. Yeah, and I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with parts of it. Like, as you said, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison for another reason, 
and I'm just going to guess here that Elias Theodoro probably made more money per fight than a guy like Daniel Tamer does. Uh, if you got in on the tough contract, maybe not initially, but yeah, yeah he's eventually. 11 fights in at this right. point, well, right? Yeah, so, but those tough contracts can be kind of bad for a while. So I bet that there were some other uh, considerations at work here. But the thing that makes me uncomfortable, as we talked about last week, is the idea that the the organization, the company itself, is going to basically incentivize a, a certain kind of fighting. And, like, that's not what mixed martial arts is supposed to be. Like, mixed martial arts is supposed to be an open forum for anyone to bring their style in there. And, and you know, as the old cliche used to go, try to prove themselves against elite competition, the best competition out there. Find out what works and what doesn't. And if a guy like Elias Theodoro is out there winning fights, however he's doing it, if he's proven that he is good enough to be in the UFC, I think he ought to have a spot there. But, you know... I'm old school like that and maybe a little bit uh, biased toward open competition and, you know, a little bit biased against the idea that the only thing that matters is entertainment. Because eventually you start talking about you have to draw a line between uh, are we watching a, a sport or are we just watching a thing that is there purely for stylistic entertainment? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's a fight, or like a line that the fight game has always kind of struggled to draw. And you're right, that's the the concern is that the UFC putting its thumb on the scales with hiring and firing. I mean, it's okay with me if you want to say you don't like to watch Elias Theodoro. Like, that's your prerogative as a viewer or as a fan. But, like, should the guy not have a job because of it? Because, like, he fights, his style of fighting is one that you, uh, that you don't prefer over others? To me, that's just, it's dangerous, man. It's a dangerous message. Well, especially when there's also the possibility that if we're telling them we want you to be just balls out brawlers all yeah. the time and you will shorten your career that way, you will open yourself up to more health risks that way. And who's going to be there to take care of you later on when you start paying the price for that? It's not there's no pension plan in the UFC. I don't know how many people are going to contribute to your GoFundMe but at the end of all that. If I was a fighter, I'd be weighing that consideration as well. All right, next question this week comes from Jeff of Atlanta. He writes, it's been two months. Do we know what the future of fighting is yet? Did I miss it? And we are now back in the past of fighting. <laughs> yeah, whatever happened with that? It's Here's the thing. It's UFC 238 fight week, right? Everybody's going to be in Chicago. There's going to be a lot of reporters on the ground. You and I won't be there. We'll be here. But if someone sees Dana White... I feel like it's a legitimate question to ask. Like you said this to Brett Okamoto a couple weeks or a couple months ago. What is it? Have we seen it? Where's when is the future of fighting? When does it arrive? If it turns out that it's already happened, that we are already living in the future of fighting and we just didn't know it. I'm going to be pissed off. I am too. I am going to be very pissed off. Because if it's the future of fighting, not the future of UFC, he was very clear on that. The future of fighting itself, Chad. If that has already happened and it somehow escaped our notice, that's some bullshit. Agreed. Totally agreed. I just want to know what it is or what it was or what it will be. <laughs> I, I think we have to assume that it has not happened yet because everything feels pretty unchanged. I think we're still living in the present of fighting. Yeah. I mean, I would like to think that if the future came along, we would know it, right? You'd like to think so. Somebody's just got to ask the follow-up, man. Yeah. We got to find out what this was. Last question this week comes to us from Matt Liming. He writes, I'm curious as to what Dana White thinks of seeing PFL ads in between rounds on ESPN and your opinions as well. Please discourse. We talked about the flip side of this last week. Might have been, been during the live chat or the yeah, power it was hour. Yeah, live chat. But basically that, the, that ESPN is sending out these MMA highlights that includes knockouts from the Pro Fighters League, knockouts and submissions, stoppages basically. But they're kind of branding it all as like, hey, here are the UFC highlights from the past week, which I said if I was PFL – 
Like I would be thankful for the additional exposure, but I'd also be kind of like, hey man, one of our primary things is getting people to understand that we are not the UFC. So it doesn't really help us if you say, here are the UFC highlights from the past week. Flip it around the other way, PFL advertisements in between rounds on ESPN. I got to think nobody cares that much. And one of the reasons why is that the UFC is cashing them sweet, sweet ESPN checks, which kind of seems like... The only thing that matters right now at that at this point. Yeah, and there's also been a cozier relationship between the UFC and PFL than there is between the UFC and like Bellator. Yeah. So I think that that plays a role too. I think the UFC probably looks at PFL and thinks, all right, well, hey, let us know how the Kayla Harrison thing works out and maybe we'll be interested down the road. I think that that's kind of how the UFC is looking at PFL. So I don't know if it really bothers you too much. And I think also if you're the UFC... On your list of concerns, concerns that might be, you know, top of your mind as you're dealing with ESPN stuff, somebody else paying for ads on your stuff is not, it's not the biggest, biggest one on there. You're yeah. all right with that. I, I agree with you. And I think as long as those checks continue to clear, they're going to take a, uh, a laissez-faire attitude, let's say, to the rest of the ESPN slate of programming. Anyway, that is going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short, and it's informative. We would love to tell it's funny and if you don't like it well it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one so ben anthony smith ends up stopping Alexander Gustafson via submission, a rear naked choke about midway through the fourth round in the main event of UFC Fight Night 153 from Stockholm, Sweden. This was kind of a tense fight, I guess. It was the kind of fight where, you know, you know that both guys are are, uh, fearsome strikers. So even though they weren't in full-out brawl mode the entire time, it was one of those fights where you were kind of on the edge of your seat to, to see what happened. But at the same time, I'm not sure that it was a fight that was one that we're going to remember on into, you know, the future. Like it's it it was most of the action was a little bit tepid here, and I think the, one of the reasons for that is that after the fight, Anthony Smith comes out says he broke his hand basically on the first punch that he threw that he landed. Uh, have you seen the X-ray by the way? No, that I haven't. hand is very broke. Oh, see, I always wonder that because he was very nonchalant. I would say, about breaking his left hand really early on in the fight. He said, like, that first round right away and said, you know, I could feel it clicking in there. Yeah. And the way he described that, I mean, maybe it's a little easier once you kind of got through that initial moment and then you won the fight. So maybe you feel a little bit more calm talking about it afterwards. But that has got to be a scary damn feeling. You're in there with a guy like Alexander Gustafson. You're scheduled for five. And right away, you're down a weapon. Yeah. 
that's got to be a bad feeling. But he just talked about it like, oh, well, you know, it was just an adjustment that he had to make. Well, once you see the x-ray, you will know that that is some pro MMA fighter shit. Because his hand, it's got like a, an L shape in the middle of one of the metatarsals. Oh, no. Is that what we have in our hands? Metatarsals? Sure. Let's go with that until somebody tells us different. The other thing about Anthony Smith, he he might have broke that hand, but he just kept firing it. Like that was basically his his main weapon against Alexander Gustafson leading up to the submission was he was going to work his way in and then fire that overhand right over the top and uh, try to catch Alexander Gustafson with something with something heavy and did it a couple of times. The other reason, I don't know, man, Alexander Gustafson just didn't really seem like he was feeling it. He looked like he had a hard time getting going. It looked like he had a hard time. Uh, really feeling comfortable out there against Anthony Smith. And of course, after the, the stoppage loss, he announces his retirement, doubles down on it a couple days later to say, hey, yeah, this is definitely a thing. Uh, it's it's almost set in stone at this point. So I don't know, man. It seems like you had Alexander Gustafson kind of at the end, realizing maybe that he was coming to the end of his MMA career. And you had Anthony Smith break a hand. And it just, it, w- it was a bit of an awkward fight, in my opinion. I- you're more critical of this fight than I, I would be. But I think, I don't think Alexander Gilson looked bad at all. When you see that guy move around, yeah. you're like, for as big a dude as he is, he moves just super well. And can manage to do a couple things where he can stay on the outside and use his range. Like kind of force you, if you want to go get him, to come to him. And he can manage that distance so well because he's such a long rangey guy yeah. that he makes that a really difficult prospect. It's not really difficult to get in there and hurt him. And also he makes you take some risks in order to get in there. But then he can also, when he wants to come forward on you and amp up his own offense a little bit. Like at the end of the third, he catches Anthony Smith with that body kick and then immediately takes him down. And maybe even it seemed like a sequence really that he had drilled a lot, but Maybe the takedown was even a mistake because I don't know if he even had a chance to realize that Anthony Smith seemed kind of hurt from that body kick. You could see it on his face, yeah. but I don't think Gustafson was in a position to really notice it. And he took him down and ends the round there beating him up kind of on the mat and then really basically just makes one mistake in the fight and mm. Anthony Smith pounces on it. Yeah. And see, the thing I think is that this fight showed for me was for one thing, I think we've all kind of had these doubts in the back of our mind about Anthony Smith at light heavyweight. Whereas, like, he, he moved up from middleweight. We thought, like, okay, he seems like a fun guy and everything. But I don't know if when he moved up to light heavyweight, people were going, this guy is going to be serious business up here. But then he wins, like, three in a row, beats a couple ex-champs. He gets that John Jones title fight kind of because nobody had any better ideas. You know, he had a decent win streak going. John Jones wanted to stay busy, so we were like, sure, fine. Go ahead, give Anthony Smith his shot. It's his turn. And then he gets beat by John Jones. The nicest thing we were willing to say about him basically was at least he didn't complicate matters by taking that DQ. Yeah. <laughs> like he really could have. And so, like, good for him. But then he turns right around and books this fight with Alexander Gustafson. I remember us talking about it and being like, this could be a mistake. Yeah. Like, this could be where you begin a, a precipitous decline. Because if you turn right around and lose to Alexander Gustafson, then you looked like you were more flash in the pan than real contender at light heavyweight. But he beats Alexander Gustafson and looks good doing it. It's an impressive win for him to find a way to win that fight, especially after breaking his hand early. And to me, I come away from that going, he's a guy. Yeah, He is a guy at light heavyweight. Yeah, he even came out and said it, I think, maybe even today, that his quote was something like, people are having a hard time adjusting to the idea of me being on top. Which is, like, absolutely true. It is. The other thing that I think 
this illustrates that that quote illustrates is that it, like Anthony Smith is super likable in this division. Like he's an honest guy. He's obviously a pretty good talker. Yeah, super articulate. He and seems smart. He seems pretty self-aware. He seems honest with himself, or at least in in media appearances and in breaking down you know what went right and what went wrong for him. And as the broken hand can attest, he's just a tough son of a bitch. Also, so like. I think it's awesome to have him in this division. I think it's awesome to have him at 205. And I guess now that he took John Jones to decision and then he beats Alexander Gustafson in his next fight, you, you got to give it up for the guy that he's for real. Like, I don't think that there's any room to doubt that he does not belong, you know, among the elite fighters in that, in that weight class right now. And I think one of the things that's good for Anthony Smith is that I don't necessarily know that we need to see him against John Jones again anytime soon. But at the top of the show, we were talking about this youth movement afoot in the 205-pound division, and there are, you know, at least three or four guys out there right now that if you told me they were going to fight Anthony Smith next, I would have zero complaints. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of good fights out there. for, And I think, though, that this might be the fight where people get used to the idea that Anthony Smith is a serious contender at light heavyweight and that he's going to be one of those guys at the top. Although, Alexander Gustafson's retirement afterward... I think does cast a little bit of a different light. Like if you wanted to take something away from him, yeah. you could say, well, you beat an Alexander Gustafson that the fact that you beat him convinced him he should retire. Which leads me to my next question. Do you agree with John Jones? Do you believe Alexander Gustafson? Well, you would be a fool to believe anyone at this point, <laughs> right? And it's well, and like you said, you watch Alexander Gustafson fight and he does not appear to be that much of a reduced version of Alexander no. Gustafson. Like if you didn't, if he didn't retire, you didn't tell me maybe he was not totally feeling it out there. I would not have guessed that, you know, it wasn't all clicking for him against uh, Anthony Smith in this fight. And it makes me wonder, you know, the guy is only 32 years old, he's right. still pretty young. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's had about 25 fights in his MMA career, but at the same time, he seems like he has a lot still left in the tank. He is, you know, he's lost four of his last six, but I think you got to take into account competition on a lot of those fights. He got yeah. knocked out by Anthony Johnson, which can happen to anybody. He lost to Daniel Cormier, which can happen to anybody. He lost to John Jones, which has happened to everybody. And then he loses this fight to Anthony Smith because, you know, he makes one mistake basically in the, in the fourth round. So I don't know if it's the results that have convinced Alexander Gustafson that, Maybe he needs to walk away or at the very least take some time away. Or I don't know if he is out there feeling stuff that we cannot necessarily see. Yeah, that could be. He did say before this fight, and it sounded like he was talking shit on Anthony Smith. But then when you look at the full context of the quote, I don't think it's how he meant it. Basically, if I can't beat him, then maybe I don't have it anymore. And I understand what he was saying afterwards where if he's looking honestly at where he is and he thinks... I am not going to be the champion. I'm not going to be the absolute best. Then why keep doing it? Yeah. And other people have found answers to that question before in the past. That They have figured out a way to keep doing it and to feel good about it, whether it's for a paycheck, whether it's because that's just at this point how they identify themselves and how they know who they are. And who knows? He might have some time to think about it and come to that conclusion too. But I would also understand what he's saying there because it's – you know, you go in there and break your hand on somebody's head and then you got to keep fighting them, not to mention all the training and all the other stuff you put up with to be a pro fighter. That's a hard damn job. Yeah. You need to be super motivated to do that job. And if the motivation for you was, I want to be the best, once you get it in your head that that's not going to happen for me, 
I could see how it's going to be hard to get up out of bed and go to those training sessions. Yeah, it's so physically hard. It's just like you are physically uh, beating yourself to a pulp pretty much every day that you are in fight camp. And not necessarily like taking that kind of damage, but just like just to do the cardio, man, just to get in shape, to have a five-round fight against a guy like Anthony Smith. You just basically have to torture yourself every day. And if you're not 100% into it, and for all we know, Alexander Gustafson is out here with a bunch of different interests, and maybe he can do uh, different stuff in his life. He doesn't want to do it anymore. More power to him, man. That's his prerogative. And leading up to this fight, we had talked about how even if he beat Anthony Smith, maybe the way forward for Gustafson would be a little bit murky at this point because, you know, he's lost twice to John Jones. He's lost to Daniel Cormier. Short of like moving up to heavyweight, which I don't know that his frame would be ideal for that. You know, there's heavyweights he could beat. Well, yeah, right now, probably that's probably true. You can roll in in the morning after the fight and beat some heavyweights. But <laughs> at least at 205 pounds, we took a look at the at the lay of the land and just thought, hmm, Alexander Gustafson is going to have to win a bunch of fights, frankly, before he's probably considered the number one contender. So maybe all of these things considered, Alexander Gustafson thought. It's time for me to walk away. A year from now, you think he's still retired? I mean, the the nature of this retirement is one of those ones where it seems like he just needs to take some time. It's one of those ones where, like, once he his body heals and once he uh, resumes regular life a little bit and gets some, like, emotional and psychological distance from his career— you know he's he's still going to have that competitive fire. So it's hard to it's hard to take any MMA retirement seriously. It's hard to take like this kind of retirement seriously. I don't know enough about Alexander Gustafson, frankly, to tell you what I think he's going to do next. But I wouldn't be surprised if we hear noise from him in a year or so saying he's he's thinking about coming back. Yeah, and see that's why I feel super conflicted when I feel like John Jones has the most astute assessment of a situation yeah. in MMA. I mean. Classic Jones tweet yeah. to come out oh, yeah. of the gate saying, I don't believe you. Yeah. He's but, gonna lead with that. Yeah. yeah. And he's gonna put it as bluntly as he can. And then he's gonna say some nice words yeah. after that. It's like the opposite of the all due respect, but then I'm gonna say some shit to you, like construction, where he's gonna say some shit right up front, and yeah. then he's gonna be nice after that. But I read it and I was like, You're kind of being a jerk here, and yet you have also summed up my feelings that a, I don't really believe it because it's an MMA retirement, first of all, but also just because it happened right after the fight and you're still pretty young and the little, you know, you could take four years off and still come back and have a good career if you wanted to. But then also if it is true, then yeah, let's pause and appreciate what Alexander Gustafsson has brought to this sport, especially being the big time Swedish MMA ambassador. It's become like a really, big hotbed for the sport they really get behind him uh it's it's also a really fun crowd to see fights in front of just because of the way they approach it like they don't do just booing you or telling you you're gonna die just because you're a foreigner kind of thing in in those fights in stockholm so he did bring some valuable contributions to the sport if we say for the moment that we're gonna make the choice to believe him now's the time to, to pause and appreciate those all right let's do are you fucking kidding me ben and then we'll move on to round number two ben what's your are you fucking kidding me this week okay so we mentioned that that head kick knockout yeah that alexander rakich landed on nasty on, on Jimmy stuff Manuel. and then afterwards you know he's doing the thing where he's he's celebrating a little bit he's walking around that he's flexing he's telling he's telling everybody to be quiet everybody seemed to be quiet because they worried that they had seen a man killed yeah yeah and then afterwards he gets on the mic and he apologizes he's his 
post-fight celebration after knocking a man clean out includes him saying, I'm sorry, several times. Are you fucking kidding me? That's wonderful. (laughs) I really appreciate somebody who can say they're sorry, especially in a moment like that. I don't know how it was in the in the arena, but if you were watching on ESPN Plus after Anthony Smith beat Alexander Gustafson, it seemed like it was dead quiet in there. And maybe some of it was because, you know, it happened on the ground and there was a tap out kind of behind Alexander Gustafson's yeah. body. And even if you were watching on the big screen, the camera was kind of on the wrong side of his body to see it. So maybe there was just some confusion about what had happened. But if you would have told me that there were zero people there at that point, I would have believed you. <laughs> yes. Ben, this isn't MMA, but I just got to give a shout out to Anthony Ruiz Jr., who went out there and knocked out Anthony Joshua over the weekend to win the heavyweight boxing title in like four different promotional entities. I just, he's just out here doing it for people with normal bodies, which I appreciate. Someone who does not look like he's chiseled out of granite went out there and won something. Are you fucking kidding me? I couldn't be more into it. Have you seen this dude work out though? Yeah. Or did you see him doing the like agility ladder? Yeah, everyone's seen that by now. He is that's an athlete right there. That's a 260 pound man looking looking like a ballet dancer. I also love his love of Snickers. One of the best candy bars out there. We all love Snickers, man. Come on. It really satisfies. Rare, positive, are you fucking kidding me? That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Before I came over here, I went by the library, and I pulled out one of those big old dictionaries that they have there, and I flipped to the page uh, where it says, gives me the definition of lightweight banger. There was a picture in there of Tony Ferguson, Donald Cerrone. Now, you... You tell me how that's possible. The dictionary is made like 1920. Was that Webster's Unabridged? You know, I forget. I don't want to get into dictionary specifics here with you. I've been down that rabbit hole with you before. I'm just telling you, even the dictionary made in 1920 knows that this right here, between Tony Ferguson and Donald Cerrone, is a bona fide lightweight banger. Stakes don't even really matter for this. I'm not even really going to get too hung up on the fact that because it's in the middle of the card here, it's a three-rounder instead of a five-rounder. All I'm looking at is these two guys in a cage, and I know I risked the wrath of the MMA gods by saying this, but I cannot see how it's not a fun fight. Yeah, you know what I like the best about this is that it's two absolute wild men out there. Yes. But it's kind of like opposite styles in a way, because Tony Ferguson's going to go out here and just do barrel rolls and crazy shit, and Donald Cerrone is a very tight, efficient, straightforward kickboxer who can also submit you on the ground. So it's kind of like... Uh, Tony Ferguson is going to be like doing spin, spinning shit and barrel rolls. And Donald Cerrone is just really efficiently going to knee you in your liver every yeah. time you get close to him. So like, not only are these two action fighters who are going to go out there and, and put a scrap on for potential number one contender status at lightweight, but like two technicians of what they do going to, it's going to be like a, uh, like a Yahtzee. You're going to put a bunch of dice in there and shake it up and throw it out. And that's what this fight is. If I may. One guy, Don Cerrone, he's going to fight like Van Damme in Kickboxer. Uh-huh. Tony Ferguson is going to fight like Van Damme, as well as every other member of the supporting cast in Bloodsport. There you go. 
Did you read in my story how Don Cerrone started his career? About how he, uh, he went he from first, bull riding. He first went to the gym, though. When he did, you get that far? It's about halfway through. This is a story that the guy who ran this Freedom Fighters MMA team told me that Don Cerrone first showed up at the gym as a twenty-year-old and already had a professional boxing match booked for himself. Sure, he, he showed up at Why the gym I? and he was like, "Hey." I have a professional boxing match booked. I just need a coach to help me get ready. And the guy was like, where's your gear? And he was like, I don't have any. And the guy was like, you don't have a groin protector? You don't have a mouthpiece? And he's like, nope. And the guy was like, you need more than a coach, man. You're in trouble. <laughs> but you also do need a coach in yeah. addition to those so they went. So they went and had this professional boxing fight, which was at like a, a hotel in Denver. And Cerrone lost in the second round. The guy threw in the towel because he's like, I could see that he was good. But like he was fighting a guy that was just way, way more experienced. And then the guy who ran this MMA team had to uh, petition the state athletic commission for Cerrone to get his amateur status back. Because he was like, I could tell he was really good, but he was going to ruin his career if he was forced to uh, soldier on as a professional. So it's just like little wrinkles that you would not know about if you didn't talk to these people involved. But like that could have really changed Donald Cerrone's career. A guy who this weekend is going to go out and uh, like tie the record for the most appearances ever in the UFC, has the most wins in UFC history, has the most post-fight bonuses in UFC history. Like if not for this little bit of maneuvering really early in his career, who knows where he would be. I might need, want to know more about the promoter of this event who yeah. took a Don Cerrone who did not even have any equipment and put him in there. Yeah. It also seems like consummate cowboy, right? Like reaffirms everything we have known about the guy for his entire life. Now, Tony Ferguson enters this bout under interesting circumstances because just a few months ago we were hearing about troubling goings on in yeah. the life of El Kakui. And then suddenly he's fine, everything is great, he's ready to get back in there, gonna fight Donald Cerrone. Now you wanna believe everything really is great. You also wanna believe that the people around him, you know, his team, the UFC, would not risk putting him in the cage, especially for such a high-profile, dangerous fight, if everything was not great. Yeah. But then you could also, if you chose to, see it a different way. Like, he was being a little bit difficult to negotiate with because he felt like, you know, he'd been the interim champ, had it taken away from from him without ever losing a fight. He still wanted the, that title fight, felt like he deserved it. Then he goes through some personal troubles, and then maybe he's in a more vulnerable negotiating position for the UFC that comes to him and says, you know what you need? You need to get in there and win a fight, get everybody thinking about that again. We just so happen to have an opening yeah. against Donald Cerrone, and you go in there, and then, sure, this time we'll promise you a title shot. You could also see how that might have happened. Yeah. And it feels like we're all going to be kind of waiting to see Tony Ferguson on fight week in order to try to figure out where his head's at. And even then, I don't know if we're going to get a great fix on it, Yeah, because he's a tough guy to read in that way. Yeah, man, we have no way to know. So you just kind of have to hope and pray that everything is on the up and up for Tony Ferguson. I mean, it was just March. It was just March when we learned that his wife had filed a restraining order against him. And it sounded like he had been going through uh, some pretty significant psychological issues. So on one hand, it's hard to believe that he could totally pull everything together in this short amount of time uh, and come in here for a really high profile and important fight against a really tough opponent. So I agree with you. It's going to be 
there's an aspect of this fight that makes me a little bit uneasy. And it's something to, to look out for, I think, during fight week. But again, like you said, Tony Ferguson is known as kind of an odd character. I don't know what the clues would be that things weren't exactly going all that well for him. Yeah, it's like if he shows up and starts spouting off a bunch of non sequiturs and in interviews, well, that's what he always does. You, you couldn't tell anything. If he, yeah. oh, How about this? If he shows up and he insists on wearing sunglasses indoors. No, no, that's what he always does too. How about, okay, if we see training video of him doing a deadlift while balancing on a yoga ball. No, that's also just classic Tony Ferguson stuff. Yeah, it makes me wonder how often this kind of stuff happens uh, and we just don't know about it, you know? Yeah. Like, we found out about this because it's, A, it's Tony Ferguson, and B, it got put in the public record when, you know, uh, restraining orders started to get filed. It really makes me wonder, like, how long were there notable problems going on with Tony Ferguson and like how often do people show up to have fights like this that have, you know, some kind of personal crisis going on and we just don't find out about it. Yeah. Well, and it also puts a little bit of a different lens for the fight itself, right? Because this should determine who gets a next lightweight title fight. Yeah. In, in a, theory. In a just world. In theory. The winner of this, I don't see how you would be able to deny them a lightweight title fight. Except, your boy Nurmi's plans are, he's going to fight Dustin Poirier, then, at the end of the year, he wants to fight George St. Pierre. And it sounded like, when at least George St. Pierre was announcing his retirement and leaving a little bit of a door open, that what he wanted was a fight with Nurmagomedov. So you could very easily end up looking at that, and the winner of this fight spends, you know, the next six months wondering what the hell is going to happen to him. Yeah. So, it's And that really, doesn't even mention Conor McGregor, who could no. duck back in at any moment. At any moment. And he's, he's standing behind the curtains right now in the lightweight living room, and you, but you can still see his shoes. You can see the feet. Yeah. We can see those are Gucci loafers At any moment, there. he could throw back the curtain and be like, it's me, I'm back! Yeah. And who knows what will happen. Yeah. And so, I guess maybe... From a fan perspective, all we can really do here is sit back and go, guaranteed fun time yeah. between Tony Ferguson yeah. and, and Donald Cerrone, and let's not look too far down the road. We have talked before about how like one of the interesting things about Donald Cerrone is that he's sort of like The Undertaker in WWE, and that like he doesn't really need the title. He doesn't need to be in the title picture. As long as he's Donald Cerrone and he's out having fights like this one, people are going to watch. And it was one of the reasons that we thought it was crazy that allegedly the Conor McGregor-Donald Cerrone fight fell apart because they weren't going to make it a main event. Like That's the main event you can do without a title in it. Right. So I don't understand why that would be a sticking point in the negotiations. doesn't sound like it was a sticking point for your boy Cowboy. Right. <laughs> Okay, fair point. Uh, Tony Ferguson is almost in that same category. Like, Tony Ferguson is so wild out there that, like, I would watch that guy in almost any fight. So I wonder, you know, it is really possible that the winner of this fight will still have to have at least one more fight before he gets the chance to have a crack at the title. I wonder if the best slash worst thing that could happen to the winner of this fight is if Dustin Poirier messed around and beat Habib Nurmagomedov. And I wonder, in addition to that, if the winner of this fight could do worse than, especially if you're Donald Cerrone, go out there and call out Conor McGregor again. Yeah. Yeah. I would say either one of them should consider calling out Conor McGregor afterwards. I'm going to say, let me, how about this? I'm going to set the over-under on Tony Ferguson barrel rolls at three. You're taking the over or the under? In the, to in the whole fight? Whole fight. Oh, man. Three-round fight. Three. I think I would cautiously take the under. Okay. With the understanding that it's a risky bet. 
Yeah. Well, how about just if you had to pick a winner here, who do you think comes out on top? I think I would take Donald Cerrone right now. He's been on such a tear, and in his last three fights, he's looked really, really good. Now, you could say that the Cowboy has the story of his career, basically, is him putting together win streaks and then losing when he gets the chance to uh, fight someone in the elite and a a big moment for him that is going to open up potentially a bunch of doors. But, like, we don't know what's going on with Tony Ferguson. I would feel real hesitant about picking Tony Ferguson just without any knowledge as to where, where he is right now in his life and career. So I would take Don Cerrone with the understanding that like, uh, in a, you know, without any backstory, Tony Ferguson is probably the favorite, but at this moment in time right now, I think I would take Cerrone. I think Tony Ferguson is actually a slight betting favorite here. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, I don't, it's, it's, it's not like, there are it's, there are extenuating circumstances here, and you there can't are. ignore them. That's true. I will say, if the fight gets out of the first round, then I think it's Donald Cerrone's. If it doesn't, then I think it's because Tony Ferguson jumps on him early. Well, if it doesn't get out of the first round, then we're not seeing three barrel rolls. You think we're going to see three barrel rolls in like the first minute? No. No, I do not. Okay. So that's why I'm taking the under. I guess I just contradicted myself, though. I took the under, but then I picked Cerrone. So... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think you might see more barrel rolls out of Tony Ferguson if he is in a more defensive posture. That that could be true. That could be true. I'm just excited for it. I'm excited to see what happens. And now to count the barrel rolls. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Henry Cejudo has really been putting himself out there. He has. Ever since he beat Demetrius Johnson, it seems like he's really ramped up his promotions game. You know, sometimes that includes taking out a big rubber snake, whipping it against the the stage before he goes nose-to-nose with TJ Dillashaw. Sometimes uh, it includes a strange drone shot video of himself standing on uh, on the pier, wistfully looking out over the waves. Sometimes... It includes trying to turn this fight with Marlon Moraes, who he shares a manager with, into like a weird blood feud where it would ordinarily just be a fight between two interesting, talented guys for the vacant bantamweight title. I mean, we have complained in the past about people not trying hard enough in this area. You know, the the examples I gave might have been a little bit goofy, but I honestly respect and support what Henry Cejudo has been up to. Like... In this era, especially, you got to try to put yourself out there. And you got to give Henry Zahudo an A for effort, if nothing else. Here's what I want to know about all these efforts. Is he in on the joke at this point? Because it does seem like it's a little bit... It's become like a meme, right, about, hey, I don't know if you knew this, but Henry Zahudo actually won a gold medal. Yeah. Like that, that whole thing and just like his various efforts to get attention and how they always they always kind of feel like if you fed the raw data into a computer program and we're like okay now produce for me a champion who really gets over with the MMA fans and it, it spit out this like readout and you're like ah, it looks a little off like it's all I can't say it's, it's doing the wrong things but it's just you know it's like a symphony that a computer wrote kind of thing and that's how it has kind of felt 
And yet, it still feels enjoyable. Like, people still seem into it. He's still going to get our attention one way or another, even if it's not. It doesn't come away with people being like, oh, yeah, that was badass. Like, that stuff that Henry Cejudo did with the snake and, like, this weird outfit he wore to the press conference and all the stuff he's doing to get our attention. Like, yeah, I'm totally on board with the Henry Cejudo train. But it is entertaining. Yeah. So it's kind of working. Yeah. And on top of that, he's just a really awesome fighter. Yeah, especially since, you know, he lost to Demetrius Johnson and then lost to Joseph Benavidez by split decision in that fight where he lost a point after some low blows. From that point on, it really felt like a a switch flipped for Cejudo. He looked incredible against Wilson Hayes. He beat Sergio Pettis. And, of course, he had the two uh, victories over Demetrius Johnson and TJ Dillashaw, which back-to-back, even though it was a split decision over Demetrius Johnson, that's as good as it's going to get. Yeah. Almost in any weight class in terms of back-to-back victories. Uh, so yeah, like he's got a, he's got a good story. He's got a peerless athletic background. He's got, uh, the gene to want to promote himself. He's a really talented fighter. Two questions. Number one, do you think fans are buying it? And number two, is it going to be too late to save the flyweight division? I think it is too late to save the flyweight division. I think that the UFC has kind of made up its mind on that. Like I said before, I don't know if I said it on the live chat or what, but that, to me, as soon as you let Demetrius Johnson go, that's you telling me that you've given up on this this whole enterprise. Well, maybe they just thought Demetrius Johnson wasn't the right guy. Like, they had, what, eight years, five years of him as champion with fairly uh, middling box office numbers? Maybe they were just like, we got Henry Cejudo now. We don't necessarily need Demetrius Johnson. And we're immediately going to start matching him up against bantamweights. Okay, that's the thing. Do you think if Henry Cejudo goes out there and beats Marlon Moraes this weekend, becomes the champ, 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 becomes the men's bantamweight champion, is the flyweight belt just going to dematerialize? Yes. Well, he'll be holding, I mean, holding it on his shoulders like Conor McGregor and one of the belts, uh, like in Back to the Future, like one of the belts <laughs> is just going to start to disappear. I think that it becomes a prop and nothing else. I don't think it goes up for grabs again if he if he beats Marlon Moraes. And I think also everybody else who is still on the roster and was under the impression that they were a flyweight in the UFC is going to get told, would you like to be a bantamweight? And if not, would you like your release from the UFC? I, or maybe they'll just have him fight out those contracts. Who knows? But, I, yeah, especially if he moves up the division and becomes that champion, I think they'll just kind of go with that. It is interesting how it all worked out, because obviously TJ Dillashaw was on the record saying he was getting paid a lot of money to go down to 125 and pill and kill the flyweight division. He gets knocked out in like 32 seconds or whatever it was. Turns out he was JPD. It would have been... Think about this. How huge of a disaster would it have been if TJ Dillashaw had won that fight? Yeah. And then he's the champ champ, and then maybe you do away with the flyweight division, and then maybe he's got to give the belt up anyway. So that would have been not great. That would have been a fiasco. That's the technical term for that. But it is interesting how things work out. The TJ Dillashaw lost that fight, so the flyweight division has kind of soldiered on, perhaps as a zombie, I'm not sure. And then he tests positive for EPO, just plain doping, JPD. And he vacates the title, and now Henry Cejudo moves up to fight for the vacant title against Marvin Marlon Moraes. If you were, if you wanted to, to create a scenario by which it felt like the UFC was going to get rid of the flyweight division, this is it, right? Right, but then there's the very real chance that Marlon Moraes wins this fight. You know, he's the betting favorite right now. Is that true? Minus 120 odds I'm looking at. Henry Cejudo plus 100 if you have 20 bucks you never want to see again. And honestly, 
the way he has looked since coming into the UFC, you know, I mean, he he had that that first fight where he loses the the split decision, right? Where and I, you know, okay, you're you're moving over from the World Series of Fighting at the time, now the PFL, yeah, and your first fight in the UFC he lost a split decision to Rafael Sunsau, who for a long time was the like one of the best guys in the division, even if he wasn't getting any attention for it. But then he rebounds. Uh, beats John Dodson, Aljamain Sterling, Jimmy Rivero, and then beats Rafael Sunsau, finishes him in the rematch. It's pretty clear that if anybody deserved a fight for the bantamweight title right now, he's the guy. It's not out of the realm of possibility he goes out there and beats Henry Cejudo. No, it's absolutely not. That and then split if decision loss to Rafael Sunsau is his only loss since 2011, if you're keeping score. And if you're the UFC after that, then you're like, well, okay, we could... Just bring Henry Cejudo back down. Then we still have a champion. Yeah. We still have a belt to put on the poster. We we still have all that nice stuff that we like. And we got Marlon Moraes at the other weight class. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer to me that if Cejudo doesn't win, you got to keep the belt on him at 125. And then you would have the flyweight division just refusing to die. Now, let's imagine the scenario where Henry Cejudo becomes the champ, champ, champ. Champ, 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 champ. Now, if he goes and his... Recent record starts to look like he went out there, beat Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw, and Marlon Moraes. Got two UFC belts and a gold medal. You know, just basically running his own cash for gold pawn shop over there. Yeah. Where do you rank that as just like, like as far as short term accomplishments in MMA? That seems like a pretty damn impressive run across two weight classes. He'd be right there, wouldn't he? He'd be uh, he'd be right in the running for uh, the the one of the more impressive stretches that we've seen in a long time. Then you get a drone shot video of him celebrating, like with his shirt off, I mean, like yelling at the heavens while some guitar rock blares. He is already in interviews out here leading up to the race fight, referring to himself as quote the greatest combat sports athlete of all time. See, I kind of love it. Yeah, like if I want to believe he's and in I on think the joke, he was kinda. flexing at the same time. Because he's like a pro wrestling character at this point, and yet it feels genuine. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like a total fake. I mean, he wore, like, a sparkling gold sport coat with his gold medal around his neck. Yeah. So, right? I'm, I'm kind of into mean, that's it, that's fun. Like, that's just us having fun out there, and I can appreciate that. Yeah, no, I agree. But as you said, Marlon Moraes is a, it's a tough fight here for him. If he beats Marlon Moraes, uh, then he'll be on one of the better runs we've ever seen. If Marlon Moraes wins then I think you've got a quality bantamweight champion and maybe you let Henry Cejudo go back down if that's if that's what Henry wants to do. Tell you, if I had to pick, I I have a hard time picking against Henry Cejudo right now. He's been so darn good. So darn good. And I don't think that, especially in this fight, I don't think the, the weight, going up in weight, is going to make a huge difference. Yeah. All right, you want to do Just Saying Stuff this week and then uh, then we'll get out of here? Yeah. Ben, it's been a big week for retirements, yeah. actually. Not only Alexander Gustafson, but you had Nick Hine... Uh, I think called it quits after his loss to Frank Camacho on the undercard of uh, UFC Fight Night 153. And then this was breaking as we were getting ready to record. It seems like King Mo Muhammad Lawal is also calling it quits. What? Yeah, I talked to Stephen Morocco from MMA Junkie today. It seemed like uh, maybe he's he is retired or he's planning a retirement soon. So uh, I'm just saying it's a big week for retirements out there. Let's not let Lusty Gusty overshadow all of them. Okay. Do you do you buy all the retirements? What is if, if say in a given week you get five MMA retirements, how many of them stick? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, uh, 
I don't uh I don't know a ton about Nick Hine. It looks like he's got some other stuff going on. Yeah, he's had other stuff going on bio. for a long time. So like he's thirty five. You could kind of see him segwaying into a different uh phase of his career. And kind of the same thing with Mo, man. Like Mo like obviously kind of got into MMA a little bit late in his athletic life. He had already done a lot of other things in wrestling, uh, you know, and, and had a career that that I think that he's happy with and like seems like the kind of dude where like he'll have opportunities to do other stuff. So it's possible that the least believable one is Alexander Gustafson. Wow. Well, that is something to think about. You're, you're basically John Jones sitting here saying, I don't believe, no, honestly, no, I don't I'm not. believe you. I, no, I'm not John you are, Jones. You are John Jones. Nope. nope I, I not, look at you and all I see is John Jones. That's not me. It's not me. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, did you see Leonardo Santos's knockout of Stevie Ray? On the undercard here I did not in, see in that Stockholm. One. You gotta go back and look this one up because it has one of these rare moments where somebody gets knocked out. For one thing, it's kind of like a a just slapping right hand that he throws and lands it just clean on Stevie Ray. And there's a moment where you can you kind of do like the the record scratch where Stevie Ray falls back and kind of freezes. And you can just imagine like it being like the freeze frame, like Arr! yeah, that's me. How did I end up here? Well, I got hit in the face by Leonardo Santos. I'm just saying, you know, Leonardo Santos has been away for like three years or something. Comes back into this fight, wants to get his jujitsu going. You know, that's his thing. Let's get to the mat. Let's let's get that jujitsu going. Hasn't fought since October 2016. And then he goes out there, one punch KOs the guy until he's like Han Solo frozen in the carbonite. I'm just saying... That's the kind of thing, if you're not careful, can go and screw up your whole game plan. Because next thing you know, you think you're the one-punch knockout guy. Just saying, don't forget your roots. You're saying that this knockout looked like uh, something out of a Guy Ritchie movie? Yes, that's exactly what it is. I'm telling you, you go back and you watch it, you're going to think, I'm not exaggerating here. Also hope Leonardo Santos does not, or Leonardo Santos does not wait uh, another three years before we can see him fight again. Just saying. Yeah, just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 238. And then I think it'll be time to look ahead to Bellator. Uh, what do they got? Sonnen versus Machida and Rory McDonald's return, I believe, is the following weekend. Not to mention. Good Lord willing. Then he, coming up later this return. month, you got Hanato Moicano versus the Korean Zombie over there at UFC Fight Night 154. I know you're psyched about that. So we got we got stuff coming up. Here's the thing. If you happen to be a Patreon subscriber, probably during Wednesday's live chat, we will talk about all of the fun stuff that is going to be coming up on the Patreon. We got a couple of new wrinkles that we're going to be unveiling Yeah. The, this weekend, I think, followed by next week yeah a lot of good stuff coming for the patrons assuming i can figure out how to work the old email he's gonna send out the emails think about it think about jumping on board as for right now we're done we are through we are out See, the thing is right can i just tell alexa alexa no don't let's not don't do the alexa. email just, the patrons email the ten dollar patrons you're gonna have to do it yourself alexa no i would not Play the 1997 self-titled debut album by Third Eye Blind, and then email the patrons. That's, that's a lot of bangers on that album. It's, yeah. a, it's a window in your life that I didn't need. Right yeah. Now. I just didn't need it.